Thanks to Cabbage for supporting Motley Fool Answers. Get the money you need to run your small business at cabbage.com and use the code FOOL to get $100 credit on your first loan statement. Offer ends November 30. Must take a $5,000 loan to qualify. Terms and conditions apply. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined as always by Robert Brokamp. Oh, that's no fun. Robert Brokamp. Personal Finance, because that's his name. Personal Finance Expert here at the Motley Fool. Hello, bro. Well, hello, Allison. In today's episode, it's the October Mailbag, and we're joined by Megan Brinsfield, the taxiest of tax experts, to help us answer your questions about the kitty tax, living overseas, and do you really have to report everything to the IRS? Probably. Probably. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. Hey, Megan, thank you for joining us again. Stoked to be here. I mean, we've got some questions to get through, and I know you've got answers, so should we just get into it? Let's do it. All right, our first question comes from Jared. My family is having difficulty with IRARMDs. When you say it like that, it makes them sound like um, weapons. Mm And any insight on the following would, well, IRA required minimum distributions. And any insight on the following would be greatly appreciated. My dad turned 70 and a half in December 2018, but still hasn't taken the RMD I recently learned was required. Is there any way to avoid the stiff 50% penalty? Additionally, my mom passed away in 2017 before she reached 70 and a half, so no RMDs were required. Can we continue to defer RMDs based on her age? And can my sibling and I transfer my mom's IRA that she left to us into our own IRAs? So, Jared has a complicated web of things to unwind. And it sounds like he's the primary point of contact for this grouping of IRAs that's built up in his family. So, uh, for taking that on, I commend him. Um, just to recap kind of why we have RMDs is the government gives you this tax break while you're contributing to IRAs and your retirement plans over the course of your life. And so eventually they're like, we need to get our money sometime, like pay up, guys. Um, and so they require that you start taking money out of these accounts at a certain age. It gets really complicated when you have things like, well, someone died before they started taking required minimum distributions, or someone died after, and um, who the beneficiaries are matters. So, one of the things in Jared's question that isn't clear from the recap, but I think is obvious in most cases, is that a lot of times spouses leave their IRAs to one another, and they might also sort of set aside a separate account for the kids, something like that. And when it comes to required minimum distribution, who the beneficiary is matters when that's an inherited account. Um, so we'll get to that in a second. For for his dad, who's still living, he just hit 70 and a half in December and missed that first RMD that he was supposed to take in 2018. The question is like, oh gosh, what do we do about that? Like, can we go back? Can we fix it? The good news is that the first RMD you can take the year after you turn 70 and a half, but it's still supposed to be done by April 1st of the following year. So at least that gets you into 2019, and it makes it a lot easier to clean up messes that are happening in the same calendar year for tax purposes. Um, So there is kind of a mea culpa um, procedure on the required minimum distributions where it says, okay, we made a mistake. 
but we had a reasonable cause and um, we're correcting it quickly. We've taken swift action on this and it won't happen again, we promise. Um, and that's essentially what the instructions for the tax form say. So, Form 5329 is where you pay penalties for all sorts of mistakes that you could make. And um, the last one on the list is me- missing an RMD. And so, you actually say, I missed it, but I have this waiver, and you attach a statement that says why you missed it. So, things like, I was really ill and I couldn't take it, or um, one that we love seeing is like, my financial advisor didn't tell me to. That's not technically a good excuse, um, but it is one that people use a lot of times. Or like, the notification was sent to the wrong address, like technical errors, stuff like that. So, I think for his dad, he can get things back on track um, in 2019 by taking last year's required minimum that was supposed to happen, as well as this year's, and kind of say, hey, IRS, we're on track now. Which is kind of nice, because there are a lot of places that the IRS isn't quite as forgiving. And then what about with his mom? His mom's IRA? Okay, so his mom... um, His mom's IRA, the part that goes to his dad. So, I'm assuming that there's one IRA that went to his dad as the surviving spouse, and then another IRA that went to the kids. Um, And that's important, because as a spouse, to get these special benefits as a beneficiary, you have to be the only one inheriting it. Um, So, what's cool is that IRS allows people to treat an inherited IRA from a spouse as their own, which is really good if they are inheriting from someone who's older. Um, They can roll it into their own account and take distributions over a longer time frame. Um, But if someone is younger, like in this case, I'm assuming his mom is a bit younger than his dad. His dad could actually say, I'm going to leave it in this inherited structure um, because in that structure, he doesn't have to take a distribution until his mom would have been 70 and a half. Um, So he can leave it there, let it grow um, until she would have been 69 and a half. And then he can move it into his own name and take distributions in his own name. And you're looking at me like, why would you want to do that? That's like, a lot of hassle and calendar reminders. Um, But the reality is inherited IRAs use a different life expectancy table for distributions than your own IRAs. And it's better or more advantageous to be using the table for your own IRA. Um, And the difference, I just looked at one random line on those different tables, it could mean a difference of over 2% distributions each year, and that adds up quite quickly. And I think the last question was whether the kids can take this inherited IRA and put it into their own. And the answer is no, because that is a special rule that only exists for surviving spouses. So even though they're not 70 and a half, when you inherit an IRA from someone other than your spouse, you have to start taking required minimum distributions. Exactly. And if you don't get on that plan right away, um, you have five years to liquidate the whole account, which is pretty severe. Wow. All right, next question comes from Matt. 
I often hear that Fidelity estimates that a retired couple will need $285,000 to cover health care costs. Do you know if this number is an average total amount spent over the course of retirement, or would this be how much is recommended to have saved at the beginning of retirement? Secondly, Fidelity gives out the rule of thumb that one should save 10 times their income for retirement. For the median U.S. household, that's over $565,000. Does this figure include the health care estimate, or would one need to save for the estimated health care costs on top of that 10x earnings? Finally, do you know if either of these figures assume long-term care insurance? I know rules of thumb are just that, and it's better to talk to a financial professional to figure out my unique position. But all the same, any insight you can provide would help me relax. Well, I reached out to Fidelity to get the answer to this question, just to make sure I understood it. So the $285,000, that's for a married couple, so it's it's about half of that each for, for, if you're single, a little bit more for females because they live longer. Um, but it is the total amount spent over your retirement. Ideally, it is better to have that saved up before you retire, but you can get by having less than that as long as that amount grows enough to cover those costs over the course of your retirement. That 10 times your savings guideline for how much you should have before you retire, that is inclusive of the medical care. That's the good news. The one thing I want to point out, though, is that 10 times assumes you retire at age 67, which is actually higher than the average retirement age these days. So, according to Fidelity's guidelines, if you're 62 and you want to retire, you should have 14 times your salary. And if you're retiring at age 65, it should be 12 times your salary. So, I always worry about that with this 10 times guideline. People think I could retire at age 62 at 10 times. You actually should have more. Um, it is important to point out that that healthcare estimate does not, it covers Medicare premiums, out of pocket costs for, for lots of medical stuff. It does not include the things that are not included in Medicare, which includes dental and hearing aids and stuff like that. So, Medicare doesn't cover that, and that's not included in Fidelity's assessment, uh, estimate. And then finally, neither is long term care. Long term care is not covered in that $285,000 or in that savings guideline. So, if you think it's possible you'll need long term care, and most people should assume they'll need a little bit, you actually should have even more saved up. All right, next question comes from Jackie. This is an embarrassing scenario, and I don't know where to go from here. I started out with $94,000 from my retirement fund, which I converted into an IRA with an advisor. I realized they were taking unreasonably large commissions, so I removed my money but lost $10,000. I then invested some of it in Bitcoin and Ethereum and lost more money. I'm down to about $64,000 due to bad choices, and I'm wondering if it would help to remove the money and take a tax loss. I'm 65 years old. So, Jackie has had a bumpy road with investing, and I think that's um, fair to say we've all had times that we've had some bumpy roads. Um, when it comes to deducting a loss on your IRA, this is a place where like our recent tax law changes come into play because that used to be an itemized deduction subject to the two percent threshold. So those miscellaneous itemized deductions that don't exist under our current tax code. So I think the short answer is. No, we can't deduct that loss. Even under the old rules, when you could deduct it, you had to completely close out any like accounts. So, if this is a traditional IRA, she would have had to close down all of her traditional IRAs to be able to take that loss. Um, and then, when you're calculating the loss, it's based on your actual tax cost basis. And because you got that tax break up front, most people don't have a tax basis in their traditional IRAs. So, Functionally, it would be really difficult. 
I think one thing that's helpful, though, to kind of put losses in perspective globally, whether it's inside an IRA or not, is what is the value of a tax loss. And it really is like the loss times your marginal tax rate. So, if I have a $10,000 tax loss and I'm in the 30% bracket, the value of that to me is max $3,000. And usually, um, that is not as much value as like just investing a little bit better. Um, so in Jackie's case, kind of saying I'm, I want a fresh slate, you can do that within the IRA without incurring all these tax consequences of taking the money out of the IRA and then claiming a tax loss against it um, to end up in a better place. The one thing I'll add is she didn't say if this is her only retirement savings, but mm-hmm. um, if that is the case, I mean, Jackie is a, a prime example of someone whose situation really would entail that she has to work a little longer because she's going to be relying on Social Security and by delaying that every year, getting that 8% bump to her benefit each year, that will make a world of difference for her. All right, next question comes from Joe. You often mention the general rule of not investing money into the stock market that you need in the next five years, plus or minus, which I understand to be based on roughly how long the stock market has typically taken to recover after a recession. Is there a similar guideline for bond investing? Assuming I'm investing in a bond fund rather than individual bonds, where I would know the exact maturation date of each investment, is there a rule of thumb for how long I should plan for it to stay in the bond fund? Thanks very much. Bonds! So he makes the important distinction of if you invest in an individual bond, you invest $1,000 in a five-year bond, you know in five years you'll get that $1,000 back as long as the issuer is still in business. Bond funds go up and down in value, and you don't know what it's going to be worth in the future. And they can lose money, except generally speaking, it's not very much. So when you look at the overall bond market, years whether it's down, we're talking like single digit digits. Since 1926, the worst year for the overall bond market was in 1969, and it was a drop of 8%. So, not a big deal. Um, that said, it does depend on the type of bonds you own. And the two important things to consider are interest rate risk and credit risk. Interest rate risk is more important the longer-term bonds you have. If you have a long-term bond and interest rates go up, you could see that bond fund go down 10 15%. And then the other is credit. So, if you have high-yield bond fund, otherwise known as a junk bond fund, those can go down significantly. Most of those lost more than 20% in 2008. I generally recommend that you kind of stay away from those. So, if you're going to go with bond funds, any money you absolutely need in the next year or two is probably better to keep in cash, short-term CDs or something like that, maybe even three years. Otherwise, you're fine to have a bond fund. I generally think you should keep it a safer bond fund, investment grade, corporates or treasuries, intermediate term, low cost, and you'll be fine. Next question comes from Joshua. I'm in my mid-20s and trying to figure out the ideal allocation between a 401k and a Roth. I've heard that 50-50 is the best way to hedge your bets, but since the Roth grows tax-free and the 401k doesn't, wouldn't the Roth be a lot better for a younger person who is expecting significant wage growth? I'm thinking of going 30-70 or even leaning more towards Roth. So I'll jump in here because Joshua is kind of like, um, you know, calling to my twenties self. You know, like balancing taxable and Roth accounts. And you were thinking of all that back then, weren't you? I was also expecting significant wage growth. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we're in the same boat here, and I think one 
thing that he's kind of left out of these buckets is the taxable brokerage bucket. So not just thinking in binary like pre-tax or Roth. There are other kind of tax advantageous buckets as well. Um, and one of the things, so in terms of the um, you know 50/50 or other ratios, I actually look at um, roughly a third in pre-tax, a third in Roth, a third in taxable as kind of the ideal ratio as you're building assets uh, because that will lead to ultimately the most flexibility when you retire. Now, that being said, one thing that a lot of people don't consider is their 401k match. So, let's say Joshua is only saving in his 401k, and so he's splitting his contribution between pre-tax and Roth. I'm just being totally hypothetical here. But your employer match is always in pre-tax dollars. So, if if he's getting a one-to-one match there, he's actually loading up more in the pre-tax side of the equation than the Roth side of the equation. So, if you're getting a one-to-one match, putting everything in Roth will actually get you to a 50-50 breakdown on those buckets. Um, And then, one of the things to just kind of think about as you are building up these Roth assets, because I think people in their 20s can also get so um, kind of attracted to the Roth lifestyle that they <laughs> they just want to put everything in there pay the tax now i know my tax is low and you miss out potentially in the future on these lower tax brackets that you can take advantage of in the future because right now you're peeling off from the top like each dollar that you save pre-tax reduces the very top tax bracket that you're exposed to. Whereas in retirement, when I'm taking out money, I'm filling up those lower tax brackets first. And so, I wouldn't want to get to a place where I had everything in Roth, because then I've missed the opportunity to get those 10 and 15% dollars out in the future. Um, so, I think a balanced approach is appropriate, and kind of a one-third, one-third, one-third is what I'd go for. Yeah, and you're and generally, your salary will go up, according to David Blanchett at Morningstar. A college-educated individual will likely be making 50%. Their income will be 50% higher when they retire than when they're 25, and that's adjusted for inflation. So, someone who's very young will see significant wage growth as they get older, assuming that they're in some sort of a professional job. The other thing I'll add to this is that we had that whole discussion about RMDs and all that. Mm-hmm. When you have Roth assets, you don't have RMDs. If it's a Roth 401k, you have to first transfer it to the Roth IRA, but then you don't have to worry about any of that mess if you have those Roth assets. Thanks to Cabbage for supporting Motley Fool Answers. Doing a hundred things before lunch is just an average day when you own a small business, and your time is valuable. That's why Cabbage created a simple, modern way for businesses to access up to $250,000 of credit. Cabbage's application process is online and takes just minutes to complete and get a decision. If your business qualifies, you can access the amount you need right away and withdraw more funds in the future. Cabbage has an a rating with the Better Business Bureau and has provided over 200,000 small businesses with access to funding. As investors here at The Motley Fool, oh, and also being a relatively small business ourselves, we know how important it is to have options when it comes to accessing capital. Get the money you need to run your small business today. Go to cabbage.com and use the code FOOL to get $100 credit on your first loan statement. That's K-A-B-B-A-G-E.com. Offer ends November 30, 2019. Must take a minimum $5,000 
$5,000 loan to qualify. Credit line subject to review and change. Individual requests for capital are separate installment loans issued by Celtic Bank, member FDIC. Send me an email with all the details. Our next question comes from Isaac. I recently discovered and opened an account through my 401k called a self-directed brokerage account. My main reason for doing this was to expand my investing options due to the plan being very limited in what it offers. Could you please provide your knowledge and perspective on these accounts and the pros and cons regarding them? I feel as though very few people know they exist. In fact, when I asked my HR department about this option, they had no clue what I was talking about. (laughs) Oh, Isaac. Well, one reason why people don't know they exist is most people don't have the option. Depending Mm -hmm. on what source you look at, only anywhere from 20 to 40% of 401ks have this side brokerage account. We have it here at The Motley Fool. Um, and even of those that do have them, most people don't take advantage of them. So at Vanguard, for example, about 20% of the plans have the self-directed option, but only 1% of the assets are in the side brokerage account. So most people are not taking advantage of them. And it doesn't surprise me that the HR person didn't know this, because I love HR people, they're wonderful people, but they're not necessarily the best expert about your plan. That's not true here at The Motley Fool, in case there are any of our HR folks are listening. But my experience is interacting with the HR folks, they don't always know the details of their plan. So it's often better to contact the financial services provider of your plan to ask like the real nitty-gritty details. So why would you do this? Thousands and thousands of thousands of investment options. When you Once you go to the side brokerage account, you can buy any stock, any bond, any mutual fund, well, just about any mutual fund, any ETF. So if you are an educated, investor, you're comfortable with that flexibility, go right ahead. In terms of cons, there might be some extra costs involved, maybe an annual account fee. Motley Fool Plan used to charge an extra five basis points, but now the Fool covers that. But just aware of any additional costs. From the 401k provider side, why don't more plans do this? Well, a lot of 401ks feel like this isn't a good idea for most employees. Um, They feel like giving them that much freedom is basically too much rope to hang yourself with. Um, So, hopefully, if you are going to do this, you are a knowledgeable investor, a good fool, and you won't do too too much active trading or anything too crazy in your 401k. Yeah, and the employer, to some extent, is on the hook for the decisions that they make available to you. So, having that like kind of too much rope to hang you with, like you as an employee, in theory, like let's say you do, you take the rope. <laughs> this is a horrible analogy, <laughs> but you take the rope, you do the trades, and you mess up, and you're like, actually, employer, you shouldn't have let me do that. You shouldn't. Have, you should have known better. Like there is a possible course of action there because the employer, as a 401k provider, has to be kind of making sure that the boundaries are set up appropriately for the participants. So it's not like a slam dunk. Right. That's why most plans don't offer it, because the 401k providers don't want to take on that potential liability. Mm. All right. Next question comes from Sean. I was going through my old Scott Trade account that has since turned into a TD Ameritrade and noticed that one of my positions is no longer being traded, ticker EFFC, but I still have some shares of them. What are the options available to me? Can I write off the loss of my investment and do some tax loss harvesting? Yeah, so one interesting thing is, you know, what do we deem worthless? So the IRS says you can write off the value of worthless securities, um, but there are a few ways that you have to determine that something is worthless. So one way is, you know, the company goes out of business. Um, being delisted is not the same as the company going out of business. It's kind of in limbo, right? Where it's like no one's going to buy these shares. But there's also nowhere to 
like dispose of them if you want to. Um, so one interesting thing that I learned is that aside from stocks being actually having a value of zero, you can also abandon your stocks, like just walk away <laughs> in the night and say, I don't want you anymore. Um, to those stocks, and that allows you to claim this worthless securities deduction, essentially, on your tax return. So, you treat it as if you sold the security for zero on the last day of the tax year. Um, and if you're actually holding one of these securities at a place like you know, an online brokerage, they actually have a process for buying yeah. back your worthless securities, and they charge you a fee for it. Like. They're like, I'll buy them back for zero, but you have to pay me $10 for the privilege of that transaction <laughs> taking place, which it just depends on like the size of the loss you're talking about. Like if you invested in penny stocks or whatever, it might be that the the cost of the transaction is going to be more, especially if you're you have to put in that transaction over the phone. Like you get charged with a phone transaction fee, although transaction fees are like in flux totally right, right. now, but yeah. <laughs> Um, E-Trade actually has an online form called Worthless Securities Liquidation Request, which I thought was fascinating. Worthless. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you actually get to put write that on your tax return when you file, which I Worthless. thought was fun. Worthless. Worthless. I mean, it relates to that line item, not like a big red watermark across the thing. But yeah. <laughs> All right, next question comes from Ralph. I have just retired and read that if my taxable income for any given year is $75,900 or less, then long-term capital gains taxes are not applicable. Does it make sense to liquidate all of my stock holdings and use the proceeds to live off of and put any excess cash into savings or back into the market starting a new tax basis? Well, I wouldn't say any given year, but certainly in 2019, if your adjusted gross income is below $75,900, uh, actually, I think it's I think it's higher this year. It's seventy eight thousand dollars and seven hundred fifty dollars. But basically, and he's married, half that if you're single. If your adjusted gross income is below that, and you have long term capital gains, you'll pay a tax rate of zero on that. But you shouldn't sell all your stocks because as you sell those stocks, that will add to your adjusted gross income, and at some point you'll get over that seventy eight thousand dollar or whatever threshold that is. Certainly makes sense to do that up to that point. You sell the stock. You will owe no taxes on the capital gains. You can buy it back immediately. There's no 30-day waiting rule like there is for losses, and you set a new cost basis. Perfectly fine idea. Just don't do it all, and then all of a sudden you have a $400,000 income, and then you will pay long-term capital gains on most of those. So um, I have the threshold up in front of me for married filing joint. It's seventy eight thousand seven hundred fifty dollars of taxable income, right. which means to get to your gross income, you can add back your standard deduction. So right. So the standard deduction for married filing jointly is for two thousand nineteen is over twenty four thousand dollars. Yeah, twenty four four hundred. So you could have a gross income of a hundred thousand dollars. Take those deductions and still have. You know, some of your capital gains be zero, and also your qualified dividends as well. Yeah, and the other cool thing is, like, if you itemize deductions because you have a house or you give to charity, you can back off even more than that standard deduction. So you could have even more than a hundred thousand of gross income and still get to the right taxable income number, yeah. the magic one. The magic one. Yeah. All right. Next question comes from Dustin. 
My question is about small amounts of taxable income. I see banks won't necessarily send out a 1099-I unless you make $10 in interest. Do I need to report my interest income from savings accounts if, one, it's less than $10 total, and two, it's less than $10 per bank? Is all interest income taxable, or is there a threshold? I'm putting my slowly growing emergency fund to work. So, Dustin, the bad news is it is all taxable. Like, everything. (laughs) Yeah. the the tax former tax preparer side of me is like there's kind of a different answer like the right answer is it's all taxable and you need to report everything the practical answer is like you know you have to pick your battles like do do I want you going through every single bank account you had in the year and finding like down to the penny the interest that you had or do I want you to focus on like giving me your brokerage statements so like I used to definitely you know, pick my battles in that area as a tax preparer. Hopefully, I'm not like putting myself out there too much. <laughs> Sometimes, if people had seven dollars of interest, I didn't report it. But um, you know, technically, it is all taxable. But good for you for building your emergency yeah, fund. Yeah, way to go, Dustin. Totally. Next question comes from Ahmed. If healthcare costs have tripled, college tuition has skyrocketed, and housing has become impossibly expensive, then what kind of inflation is the consumer price index actually measuring? Well, this is an interesting, complicated, and controversial question. And the more I dug into it, the more I realized, but boy, this is complicated. So the point he's making is that if you look at the current reading for the CPI, which is inflation, generally speaking, it's only 1.7%. So it's basically nothing. Yet we keep reading about how all these other costs are going up. Um, So, like I said, it's complicated. If you want to understand it, you could start by reading ready for the Bureau of Labor Statistics Handbook of Methods, which is 107 pages long. I didn't get through it all, so I'm going to sum up. Sure, you tried. Though. Sum up what I learned. So the first thing you have to understand is that the CPI measures basically a basket of goods. What the average typical American household spends money on. First of all, to figure that out, they do a bunch of surveys, and there's a there's a two year lag on how they determine the basket of goods. And what gets incorporated is how our spending changes. So, one obvious example is to look back like 20 years ago and think, we didn't have smartphones. Now, everyone buys a smartphone, they have to get a data plan, they buy their apps and all that stuff. That was not an expense that was in the basket of goods, like I said, 20 years ago. So, every couple of years, the folks at the Bureau of Labor Statistics have to sort of fiddle around with this basket of goods so they can do some sort of an apples-to-apples comparison from year to year. But then they have to also adjust for the quality of the goods. So again, think of your smartphone. You can't really compare the price of the first iPhone to the current iPhone, because the current iPhone has more memory, it has a better battery, it has a better camera. So they have to adjust for quality, for what they call hedonic adjustments. So as you can see, like the whole idea of the CPI, basically, it's, it, to a certain degree, it's a bit of like economic hocus-pocus to come up with an actual number. And the more you dig in, it, the more you realize, really, that it's not reflective of the actual spending from year to year of what you may see in your own household. To address his specific things that he mentioned, you have to look at the weightings of those items in the CPI. So let's start with college. So in the current CPI, education and communication makes up 6.5% of it, and college tuition is only 1.6% of it. So you can see how college tuition could skyrocket, but it's not going to really affect the CPI so much. Healthcare, when you look at healthcare and medical care, they're only measuring the out-of-pocket expenses. So it's not total insurance, doesn't factor in 
what Medicare has to pay or what your employer is paying. It's just your out-of-pocket expenses. And that only makes up 8.6% of the CPI. So again, it's not a big component. So you can see how healthcare can keep going up, but it doesn't necessarily have a big weighting in the CPI. The biggest one is housing. How do they calculate housing in the CPI? Well, rent is part of it. And this, again, is where it gets kind of funky. Homeowners, they figure a home is part investment and part mm. consumption. And they strip out all the investment part. So if you put the down payment, if you're improving the house, uh, closing costs, none of that is, effect, is incorporated in the CPI. Basically, what they do is they calculate an implied rent that someone who owns the house would have to pay to live in the house. So again, you're getting to this like very theoretical. It's not real. What's really reflected in the pocketbook of the average American. Um, so the bottom line is, I think the CPI is fine for economists. It certainly suggests a hint of where prices are going. But if you look at it from an individual basis, from household to whole household, it's not really a very accurate reflection of how someone's budget changes from year to year. I thought you were making economists proud until you used the phrase hocus pocus. Hocus <laughs> pocus. <laughs> well, see, here's the deal. Like, the more I dug into it, the more impressed I was with it. Like, all the things that they mm -hmm. try to do, like, they use examples of, like, you know, at some point, maybe the typical suit was a two piece suit, but then later on, the typical suit is a three piece suit. Well, you can't compare the prices of the suits. You have to make an adjustment. And what if they're different fabrics? So they figure out the different fabrics of the What suit. about men's hats? No <laughs> one wears a men's fedora anymore. <laughs> exactly. Why so we are going to hell in a handbag? Some people will look at it and will claim basically conspiracy theory because a lot of what the government does is based on uh, the consumer price mm -hmm. index. For example, Social Security benefits, and mm -hmm. if they can hold down that CPI, they don't have to pay so much in, in Social Security. I don't think that's the case. I think the the Bureau of Labor Statistics is just trying to tackle a very complicated problem. I hope that they have like meetings between economists there that are like, all right, we're talking about suits today. Like, we need to nail this down. I'll bet they have all the meetings. Yeah. All the meetings. All right, next question comes from Robert. I was excited to hear y'all mention custodial brokerage accounts on the April mailbag because I've been debating about starting one for my son, but was disappointed y'all didn't touch on the kitty tax. Can y'all discuss this, please? I am not putting those y'alls in myself, Robert. Thank you. Can y'all discuss this, please? Specifically, the income brackets and what changes were made in 2017. I asked my CPA, and he never got back to me. I guess I need a new CPA. Womp womp. Yeah. So, Robert, uh, I commend you for you know thinking of your kids and trying to improve their future. And, and your down home folksy way of writing. Yes. I mean, you are representing. I love a good womp womp. I mean, he's from Baton Rouge, so he had to bring bring that through. Yeah. Um, so, kitty tax is one of those things where someone long ago found like this tax loophole and they were like, I know how I'll avoid taxes. Like, I'll just give my kids all this income producing assets and um, the kids don't have any other income. So, they're like, they'll have super low taxes and then they won't know that I'll take those assets back because they're, you know, six months old or whatever. Stupid baby. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, pull the wool over their eyes. Um, and so at some point, people caught on to this and um, they were like, look, we, we need to close this loophole a little bit. We're going to set up this kitty tax to make sure that if people are abusing this kind of transfer of assets to kids to reduce their tax rate, 
something known as income shifting. Um, we're going to make them pay, um, which is a consistent theme in the questions I seem to be answering today. But the uh, kiddie tax applies to kids that are under age 18, so kids, and then full-time students up to age 23. And the idea is that you can only have kind of a certain amount of unearned income, and over that amount gets exposed to higher tax rates than would otherwise be applicable. So if I'm, you know, a regular person in the world and I earn $9,000, I'm in the 10% tax rate, zero for long-term capital gains, stuff like that. But if I'm subject to this kitty tax, I can it really matters what the composition of my income is. You know, did I earn that money from working a job or did I earn that money because my parents gave me some stock that's paying dividends? And if it's from stock that's paying dividends, that's where the trouble comes in. So you can earn in 2019 kids can earn $2200 of unearned income before this negative implication takes place. And the negative implication changed again with our recent tax code. It used to be, well, we're going to tax you at your parents' rate. Now it's, we're going to tax you at the trust tax rate, which reaches the highest bracket at something like $14,000. So instead of you know your parents just accumulating and paying what they would have paid anyway, um, it really is a little bit more punitive to income shift to your kids. But I think the threshold is such that, you know, if you think about what does it take to generate $2,200 of unearned income in a year, you'd probably have to be invested in like, I don't know, $100,000 in a decent bond fund to kick that off in a year. Um, And so I think if you're thinking like, maybe I'll give my kid $10,000, you're probably not going to have that risk until they go to sell that asset down the line. All right, next question comes from Nick. How long does my employer have to deposit my money that is being withheld from my paycheck into my retirement account? Well, the quick answer is as soon as possible. There is this other thing that's basically like the absolute drop dead deadline, which is going to be no later than 15th business day in the following month in which you receive the money, but you should not be doing that. Every company should be basically, you know, they, they take the money from your paycheck. They should be getting it into your 401k within one or two business days. The reason I chose this question is there have been times where the businesses are hurting for cash. I was going to say, it sounds like shenanigans. Yes. Mm-hmm. So they hold on to it for as long as possible. Uh, and then and this happened to uh, the husband of an employee here at The Motley Fool. No way. The money was not getting deposited into the 401k. So it is something to keep an eye on. Because if they're strapped for cash, they're going to do everything they can to stay afloat. So, an interesting piece of my professional history is that um, when I started in accounting, auditing 401k plans was like, you know, the stuff that interns get to do. So, I was auditing 401k plans for like multiple summers in a row. And this is the kind of stuff that we had to check. We had to set, like, take a sample of the employees and look at, you know, how much the match they had elected and make sure that that got into the plan and that the appropriate match formula was used. And like, my claim to fame as an intern was I found an error in an employer match calculation. And I just thought it was like the greatest thing. And everyone just like, <laughs> Groaned because they were like, "This means that we need to reallocate like 
two cents to every employee. And I was like, but it was wrong. You know? um, but in any case, one of the things that we look for is like, are the companies you know, contributing their match in a timely manner? And back when I was doing it, um, the rule was something vague like you know, 15 business days following the time when the assets are reasonably segregable from like ongoing cash flows or whatever. And so like the company that I worked for used to wait until like the end of the year to make a one-time, you wow. know, deposit. And you compare that to working here at the Fool where, you know, our match is made every paycheck. And that is more of an ad- administrative burden. We should all go by and like high five payroll for doing that for us because legally they really don't have to. Um, you know, they're held to a little bit more liberal standard in terms of when the match is made. And I think we all know the earlier you can be invested, the better. Um, so, high five for full payroll here. Thanks, Fool. Yet again. Yeah. Yet again. All right, last question. And it's so perfect that this is um, the person who's answering it has a frugal weirdo sticker on her computer. Yay. And she went to FinCon. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I took your advice. On FI, financial independence, and now I'm going to RE, retire early. That being said, I'm moving overseas to do it, and I'm just trying to understand tax implications. I will be in my mid-40s and plan to take a bunch of cash and move it into an index fund or funds. For simplicity, let's say I'm starting with $1 million in cash, and I'll need $50,000 a year for my comfy lifestyle. Every year when I cash out $50K, will I need to be specific about which specific shares I sell, will I need to pay capital gains tax, or does this qualify for the foreign earned income exclusion? Uh, Great questions here. I'm just slightly concerned for this person's RE plan based on like a five percent. Yeah, that, that was my first thought, but he's like, maybe he's just hypothetical. But it, it, just round numbers, you know. Right. Um, but that aside, I'm assuming we're just using round numbers and and making easy math. Um, you know, the important thing anytime you are selling or disposing of an asset is understanding what disposition methods might apply. So we all know like um, I could take first in, first out, I could take last in, first out, I could take an average cost. And with any sort of fund, you have the option of doing an average cost, but that eliminates kind of specific ID in the future. So, when you open any sort of brokerage account, one of the many things that you're agreeing to is what disposition method you're applying to your account. And most of the default is last in, first out. Um, and you can change that if you want to, to be, you know, I actually want the highest cost basis to come out first or the lowest cost basis or what have you. Um, and it's one of those things that kind of gets lost in the weeds for a lot of people until it really matters. Because if you are, you know, selling something that you've, you know, in this case, dollar cost averaged into over a period of time, it's going to be much more advantageous to sell the stuff you just bought and has very little gain than selling the stuff you bought ten years ago that has, in theory, accumulated more. Um, but yes, you will be subject to capital gains taxes on that. And so, one thing that you know we just talked about was the fact that you can have a certain amount of capital gains every year that's, you know, tax-free. So even as a single person, you know, you can have about fifty thousand dollars of long-term gain income before you're paying any tax on that. 
So to me, that is an advantageous approach. Um, one thing to keep in mind is that you know the foreign earned income exclusion is something that like sounds really exciting. Because it has the word foreign in it. And, yeah, an exclusion. Right? I mean, pretty much. Who doesn't like exclusion? It's a fancy beach, and it's like somewhere in Greece that you know on a billionaire's <laughs> island. Yeah, there, it's a lot of I'm, trigger words. Yeah, yeah. So um, it sounds. Cool. It is cool for people that can um, sort of fit into the boxes necessary. Um, people think, oh, because it's foreign, if I'm just like out of the country, I apply. No. Um, it means that you are working and earning income overseas, like for a job. So if you are retired early overseas and, you know, getting capital gains income, um, that is not earned income. And so the foreign earned income exclusion does not apply. Um, and you know the other thing just to keep in mind for this individual who's you know trotting off to retire early is that um, the U.S. is one of the few countries that taxes on citizenship. So no matter where you are in the world, you still have to pay U.S. taxes, file a U.S. tax return, and that could get really messy depending on where you reside because many countries tax based on residence. So the idea is you're first taxed on the place where you reside, then you file in the US and sort of reconcile what you might owe to the relative taxing authorities. But a lot of people live in Singapore for this reason. Oh, so try Singapore, Cody. Yeah. Actually, although he didn't say, did he say where he was going just overseas somewhere. Maybe he's thinking Singapore. Maybe. If you remember like a while ago, like years ago, one of the Facebook people was like, I'm relinquishing my U.S. citizenship and moving to Singapore. That was like the thing to do. Oh, I, mean, mm. I love how you make it sound like they just went and stood off of a cliff and just shouted it out. It's similar and then to made it legal. Yeah, but, abandoning your securities. Yeah, I yeah. abandoned my securities. <laughs> I relinquished my citizenship, and then it's you worthless. Worthless. Yeah, worthless. <laughs> Megan, we did it. We made it through 13 questions today. Lucky number 13. So perfect for October's mailbag. Did you awesome. guys do that on purpose? Absolutely not. You could have lied. Yes, we did. There we go. Um, Megan, thank you so much for joining us. Please come back. I will. Yay. (laughs) If you've been listening to Motley Fool Answers or one of our many other podcasts and thought, oh man, I sure would love even more Motley Fool in my life. Man, I could use a couple stock picks a month. And what about guidance on how to invest foolishly? Well, have we got a deal for you, Answers listeners. You can get $50 off of our Stock Advisor service by going to saoffer.fool.com. This is our flagship service, and it's a great way to get started investing or start investing more regularly with that patently foolish approach you've come to love here on Motley Fool Answers. To get $50 off Stock Advisor, go to saoffer.fool.com. That's saoffer.fool.com. Oh, hey, let's head to the snail mail mailbag, shall we? <laughs> let's do it. Okay. So, Sam um, said that I guess I mentioned on the podcast that I received cards from beautiful places. So, he found a brown, a very brown card. Uh, this looks like it could be from the 1960s, but it's courtesy of the Youngstown, Ohio Chamber of Commerce. It's a postcard of a steel mill. It's an unbeautiful card. Yeah, it's beautiful. But thoughtful. We still love it. Oh, we still love Absolutely it. Absolutely love it. All right, Derek wrote in from Clemson, and he says he's applied to the 2020 summer internship. Oh, good luck! Uh, yeah, it is very, very hard to get into yes. our internship program. We My get sister like, graduated from Clemson, so 
Good oh, for you. Nice. Okay. Uh, all right. Greg and Ashley sent a card from Peru. Um, they asked which um, what's on the list of states that we have not gotten a card from. And I, and you know me, I'm not really good at keeping very good records. Um, but I'm pretty sure we haven't gotten one from Delaware or Arkansas or uh, Wisconsin. I need to do an audit. I'm sorry, because I can hear listeners right now yelling, I sent you one from Maryland! <laughs> okay. Not uh, so, our listeners have been getting a lot of delicious breakfast. So, here's the first one. Um, Henry from New Hampshire got breakfast at Biscuit Love in Nashville. And yes, I went online and looked at the menu, and it looks amazing. Biscuit um, Love. Biscuit Love. He also sent us a card from Casey's Rib Shack in Manchester. Oh, goodness gracious. I'm not huge on ribs, Sweet so I didn't, I didn't go to there. Um, all right, Jake wrote us some questions from Scranton, which I will need to add to our Trello board. Dave writes, Stocks, eh? From Ontario, Canada. Uh, Canada. Canada. Gene and Patty are back on the road, and they sent us cards from Tennessee and Georgia, and then they also um, went to Boston. They're always traveling. Those two. Those two. Phil and Andrew uh, wrote from another delicious-looking restaurant in Massachusetts called Friendly Toast, um, and they wanted to thank us for getting their son investing. Oh, okay. nice? oh man, a VW Microboss. Awesome. What? A VW Van Life. Van Life, yeah, yeah. That's what the Friendly Toast logo is, I guess. Oh, Very nice. That's so cute. Uh, Vicky went to Durango, Colorado, and passed along her grandpa's wisdom, save, then invest. Yep. Good, good wisdom. Yep. Uh, Kevin wrote uh, from the Balkans, where he is doing ground research. I don't know what that means, but it sounds pretty cool. <laughs> uh, Mike Whoa. sent a belated card from California. It got left in his suitcase. Oh. <laughs> Whatever. Uh, congrats to PT for the promotion, and thanks for the cards from New Mexico and Smoky Mountains. Love the Smoky Mountains. I want to thank Daniel. Um, you remember Daniel from Dubai? This is the postcard. Yeah, yeah. I thought I already mentioned that he he got us a postcard. But anyway, there's Daniel from Dubai's postcard. It was so great to meet you, Daniel. Uh, Bruce went the extra mile of forgetting to send us a postcard from a remote remote location in Washington State, Lake Shalan. Shalan. I should know how to say that actually, uh, being from that part of the country. Um, so he had it mailed back there and then mailed to us. Oh, he went really went the extra mile. Wow, beautiful. Rich sent us a cool wooden postcard from Carlsbad Caverns. Wood postcards always look so cool. They do. Hannah, who spells it the right way, may I add. Uh, as sent, the mother of a Hannah. As the mother of a Hannah. Uh, sent a card from New York, but she just moved to Old Town, so we're neighbors now. Yay. Uh, 50 billion cent, again, speaking of people who are always on the road, 50 billion cent is back on the road, and this time doing some cheese tasting at the Tillamook Creamery. Uh, I, I know it well. I'm a big fan of Tillamook. Oh, good. Uh, and then Thad, or Tad, I never know how to say it, Thad or Tad. Sorry, th- sorry, Thad, Tad. Sends <laughs> greetings from Nolens. I do love that town. Yes, such so, a unique area. Thank you, everyone, for continuing to send in the postcards. They make our day. I should maybe start parsing these out every episode rather than saving them just we're, for the mailbag We're mail getting an episodes. awful lot. Thank it's you are. very much. It's awesome. We love it. Uh, just, just yesterday... David Gardner was like showing off our postcards to a visitor that oh, we yeah. had, so it was really cool. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, we do hang them up, so they are on display here at Full Headquarters. Yes, for all to see. Yeah. Uh, so if you would like to send us a postcard, uh, our address is two thousand Duke Street, Alexandria, Virginia two two three one four, and you can send that care of uh, Answers Podcast or Rick and. Not Rick. Well, Rick. Yeah, you can send one to Rick. I mean, Rick, bro, Allison. You can send it to any of us. It'll make it all to the same pile. Yep. 
I yeah. think we're the only people who get postcards here at the Motley Fool. <laughs> well, Peter Peter used to send postcards to fools when he would go on vacation. Peter Barley? Mm-hmm. Uh, but he retired, and now he's in Portugal. So, oh, so hopefully he'll send us a card from Portugal. Yeah. All right, that's the show. It's edited nostalgically by Rick Engdahl. Our email is answers at fool.com. Please send in your questions, and we will eventually try to get to them. We do our best. We try. Bro, bro feels guilty about not answering every question we get. <laughs> it just, it's impossible. Yeah. It's impossible. But we love you guys. We do. All right. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Alison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. Bye.